Chapter Twenty Three of *The House of the Arrow* by A. E. W. Mason. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Three: The Truth About the Clock. To the amazement of them all, Moreau began to laugh. Up till now, he had been alert, competent, and without expression. Stolidity had been the mark of him, and now he laughed in great gusts, holding his sides and then wringing his hands as though the humor of things was altogether unbearable once or twice he tried to speak but laughter leapt upon the words and drowned them what in the world is the matter with you nicholas hanno asked but i beg your pardon moreau stammered and again merriment seized and mastered him at last two intelligible words were oui, he cried settling an imaginary pair of glasses on the bridge of his nose and went off into a fit gradually the reason of his paroxysms was explained in broken phrases we we fix the seals upon the doors and all the time there is a way in and out under our nose those rooms must not be disturbed no the great monsieur hanau is coming from paris to look at them so we seal them tight we my god but we look the fool so careful and pompous with our linen bands we girardeau shall make the laughter at the assize court yes 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 i think we girardeau shall hand in our resignation before the trial is over perhaps moreau's humour was a little too professional for his audience perhaps too the circumstances of that night had dulled their appreciation certainly moreau had all the laughter to himself jim frobisher was driven to the little louis cans clock upon the marquetry cabinet he never could for a moment forget it so much hung for betty harlow upon its existence whatever wild words she might have used to-night there was the incontrovertible testimony of the clock to prove that she had had no hand whatever in the murder of mrs harlow he drew his own watch from his pocket and compared it with the clock it is exact to the minute he declared with a little accent of triumph it is now twenty-three minutes past one and suddenly hanau was at his side with a curious air of alertness is it so he asked and he too made sure by a comparison with his own watch that frobisher's statement was correct yes twenty-three minutes past one that is very fortunate he called Anne Upcott and Moreau to him, and they all now stood grouped about the cabinet. The key to the mystery about this clock, he remarked, is to be found in the words which Mademoiselle Anne used when the seals were removed from the doors, and she saw this clock again in the light of day. She was perplexed. Isn't that so, Mademoiselle? Yes, Anne returned. It seemed to me, it seems to me still that the clock was somehow placed higher than it actually is exactly let us put it to the test he looked at the clock and saw that the hands now reached twenty-six minutes past one i will ask you all to go out of this room and wait in the hall in the dark for it was in the dark you will remember that mademoiselle descended the stairs i shall turn the lights out here and call you in when i do mademoiselle will switch the lights on and off swiftly just as she did on the night of the twenty seventh of april then i think all will be clear to you he crossed to the door leading into the hall and found it locked with the key upon the inside 
of course he said when the passage is used to the hotel de brabazard this door would be locked he turned the key and drew the door towards him the hall gaped before them black and silent hanaud stood aside if you please moreau and frobisher went out and upcott hesitated and cast a look of appeal towards hanaud her perplexities were to be set at rest she did not doubt that this man had saved her from death when it seemed that nothing could save her her trust in him was absolute but her perplexities were unimportant some stroke was to be delivered upon betty harlow from which there could be no recovery Ann upcott was not a good hater of betty's stamp she shrank from the thought that it was to be her hand that would deliver that stroke courage mademoiselle hanaud exhorted her with a friendly smile and anne joined the others in the dark hall hanaud closed the door upon them and returned to the clock it was twenty-eight minutes past one i have two minutes he said to himself that will just do if i am quick outside the three witnesses waited in the darkness one of the three shivered suddenly so that her teeth rattled in her mouth anne jim frobisher whispered and he put his hand within her arm anne upcott had come to the end of her strength she clung to his hand spasmodically jim she answered under her breath oh but you were cruel to me hanaud's voice called to them from within the room come anne stepped forward felt for and found the handle she threw open the door with a nervous violence the treasure room was pitch dark like the hall anne stepped through the doorway and her fingers reached for the switch now she warned them in a voice which shook suddenly the treasure room blazed with light as suddenly it was black again and in the darkness rose a clamour of voices half past ten i saw the hour cried jim and again the clock was higher exclaimed anne that is true moreau agreed hanaud's voice from the far corner of the room joined in is that exactly what you saw mademoiselle on the night of the twenty seventh exactly monsieur then turn on the lights again and know the truth the injunction was uttered in tones so grave that it sounded like a knell for a second or two anne's fingers refused their service once more the conviction forced itself into her mind some irretrievable calamity waited upon the movement of her hand courage mademoiselle again the light shone and this time they remained burning the three witnesses advanced into the room and as they looked again from close at hand and with a longer gaze a cry of surprise broke from all of them there was no clock upon the marquetry cabinet at all but high above it on the long mirror before which it stood there was the reflection of a clock its white face so clear and bright that even now it was difficult to disbelieve that this was the clock itself and the position of the hands gave the hour as precisely half-past ten now turn about and see said hanaud the clock itself stood upon the shelf of the adam mantelpiece and there staring at them the true hour was marked it was exactly half-past one the long minute hand pointing to six the shorter hour hand on the right-hand side of the figure twelve halfway between the one and the two with a simultaneous movement they all turned again to the mirror and the mystery was explained the shorter half-hour hand seen in the mirror was on the left-hand side of the figure twelve and just where it would have been if the hour had been 
half past ten and the clock actually where its reflection was the figures on the dial were reversed and difficult at first glance to read you see hanaud explained it is the law of nature to save itself from effort even in the smallest things we live with clocks and watches they are as customary as our daily bread and with the instinct to save ourselves from effort we take our time from the position of the hands we take the actual figures of the hours for granted mademoiselle comes out of the dark in the one swift flash of light she sees the hands upon the clock's face half past ten she herself you will remember monsieur frobisher was surprised that the hour was so early she was cold as though she had slept long in her armchair she had the impression that she had slept long and mademoiselle was right for the time was half past one and betty harlow had been twenty minutes home from monsieur pouillac's vol hanaud ended with a note of triumph in his voice which exasperated frobisher aren't you going a little too fast he asked when the seals were removed and we entered this room for the first time the clock was not upon the mantel-shelf but upon the marquetry cabinet hanaud nodded mademoiselle upcott told us her story before luncheon we entered this room after luncheon during the luncheon hours the position of the clock was changed he pointed to the sedan chair you know now with what ease that could be done could could frobisher repeated impatiently it doesn't follow that it was done that is true hanaud replied so i will answer now one of the questions in your memorandum what was it that i saw from the top of the terrace tower i saw the smoke rising from this chimney into the air oh monsieur i had paid attention to this house its windows and its doors and its chimney stacks and there at midday in all the warmth of late may the smoke was rising from the chimney of the sealed room there was an entrance then of which we knew nothing and somebody had just made use of it who ask yourself that who went straight out from the maison grenelle the moment i had gone and went alone that clock had to be changed apparently some letters also had to be burnt jim hardly heard the last sentence the clock still occupied his thoughts his great argument had been riddled his one dream of establishing betty's innocence in despite of every presumption and fact which could be brought against her had been dispelled he dropped on to a chair you understood it all so quickly he said with bitterness oh i was not quick hanaud answered ascribe to me no gifts out of the ordinary run monsieur i am trained that is all i have been my twenty minutes in the bull-ring listen how it came about he looked at frobisher with a comical smile it is a pity our eager young friend maurice thevenet is not here to profit by the lesson first of all then i knew that mademoiselle betty was here doing something of great importance it may be only burning those letters in the hearth it may be more i must wait and see good there standing before the mirror mademoiselle anne makes her little remark that the clock seemed higher do i understand yet no no but i am interested then i notice a curious thing a beautiful specimen of benevenuto cellini's work set up high and flat on that mantel-shelf where no one can see it so i take it down and i carry it to the window and i admire it very much and i carry it back to the mantel-shelf 
and then i noticed four little marks upon the wood which had been concealed by the flat case of the jewel and those four little marks are just the marks which the feet of that very pretty louis Kane's clock might have made had it stood regularly there in its natural place yes at the top of that marquetry cabinet so much lower than the mantel-shelf is too the natural place for the cellini jewel every one can see it there so i say to myself my good hanaud this young lady has been rearranging her ornaments but do i guess why no my friend i told you once and i tell you again very humbly that we are the servants of chance chance is a good mistress if her servants do not go to sleep and she treated me well that afternoon see i'm standing in the hall in great trouble about this case for nothing leads me anywhere there is a big old-fashioned barometer like a frying-pan on the wall behind me and a mirror on the opposite wall in front of me i raise my eyes from the floor and by chance i see in the mirror the barometer behind me by chance my attention is arrested for i see that the indicator in the barometer points to stormy weather which is ridiculous i turn me about so it is to fine weather that the indicator points and in a flash i see i look at the position of the hand without looking at the letters if i look the barometer in the face the hand points to the fair weather if i turn my back and look into the mirror the hand points to the stormy weather now indeed i have it i run into the treasure room i lock the door for i do not wish to be caught i do not move the clock no no for nothing in the world will i move that clock but i take out my watch i face the mirror i hold my watch facing the mirror i open the glass and i move the hands until in the mirror they seem to mark half-past ten then i look at my watch itself it is half-past one so now i know do i want more proof monsieur i get it for as i unlock the door and open it again there is mademoiselle betty face to face with me that young girl even though already i suspect her i get a shock i can tell you the good god knows that i am hardened enough against surprises but for a moment the mask had slipped from her face i felt a trickle of ice down my spine for out of her beautiful great eyes murder looked he stood held in a spell by the memory of that fierce look ugh he grunted and he shook himself like a great dog coming out of the water but you are talking too much monsieur frobisher he cried in a different voice and you are keeping mademoiselle from her bed where she should have been an hour ago come he drove his companions out into the hall turned on the lights locked the door of the treasure room and pocketed the key mademoiselle we will leave these lights burning he said gently to anne and moreau will keep watch in the house you have nothing to fear he will not be far from your door good night anne gave him her hand with a wan smile i shall thank you to-morrow she said and she mounted the stairs slowly her feet dragging her body swaying with her fatigue hanaud watched her go and then he turned to frobisher with a whimsical smile what a pity he said you she no after all perhaps and he broke off hurriedly frobisher was growing red and beginning to look proper 
and the last thing which Hanaud wished to do was to offend him in this particular. I make my apologies, he said. I am impertinent and a gossip. If I err, it is because I wish you very well. You understand that? Good. Then a further proof. Tomorrow, Mademoiselle will tell us what happened to her tonight, how she came to go to the house of Madame Levet, everything. I wish you to be present. You shall know everything. I shall tell you myself, step by step, how my conclusions were reached. All your questions shall be answered. I will give you every help, every opportunity. I shall see to it that you are not even called as a witness of what you have seen tonight. And when it is all over, monsieur, you will see with me that whatever there may be of pain and distress, the law must take its course. It was a new Hanau whom Frobisher was now contemplating. The tricks, the gasconades, the buffooneries had gone. He did not even triumph. A dignity shone out of the man like a strong light, and with it he was gentle and considerate. Good night, monsieur, he said, and bowed, and Jim, on an impulse, thrust out his hand. Good night, he returned. Hanaud took it with a smile of recognition and went away. Jim Frobisher locked the front door and, with a sense of desolation, turned back to the hall. He heard the big iron gates swing too. They had been left open, of course, he recognized, in the usual way, when one of the household was going to be late. Yes, everything had been planned with the care of a commander planning a battle. Here, in this house, the servants were all tucked up in their beds, but for Hanaud, Betty Harlow might at this very moment have been stealing up these stairs noiselessly to her own room, her dreadful work accomplished. The servants would have waked tomorrow to the knowledge that Anne Upcott had fled rather than face a trial. Sometime in the evening, Espinosa would have called, would have been received in the treasure room, would have found the spade waiting for him in the great stone-vaulted kitchen of the Hôtel de Brabizard. Oh, yes, all dangers had been foreseen, except Hanaud. Nay, even he, in a measure, had been foreseen, for a panic-stricken telegram had reached Frobisher and Hazlitt before Hanaud had started upon his work. I shall be on the stairs, monsieur, below mademoiselle's door, if you should want me, said Moreau. Jim Frobisher roused himself from his reflections. Thank you, he answered, and he went up the stairs to his room. A lot of use to Betty that telegram had been, he reflected bitterly. Where was she tonight? he asked, and shut up his mind against the question. He was to know that it was precisely that panic-stricken telegram and nothing else which had brought Betty Harlow's plans crashing about her ears. End of chapter 23